0: Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Emerging Critics podcast. This conversation with literary editor Rosemary Goring offers perspective on the current practice of reviewing. With the help of a wealth of medical metaphors, we discuss criticism as surgical and precise, as well as being more broadly diagnostic of the health of a culture. The conversation ranges across the health of the profession too, and Rosemary reflects on the changes in the commissioning of reviews that she's seen across her career, and on the hope for the future. I'm here with Rosemary Goring, who is the literary editor of The Herald and The Sunday Herald and The National, and is a a long-time critic. Very accomplished voice in Scottish literature and a novelist in her own right. It's lovely to be here with you and uh, to hear a little bit about um, your involvement in the Emerging Critics Programme. Uh, And I'd love to hear a bit about how, as a literary editor, you have you know evolved as a critic yourself, um, how you've seen the profession evolve, and how you see people coming into it now, and the sort of pathways um, that people are following, mm. um, and how, how voices might evolve or, um,
1: yeah, come to sort of contribute to Scottish culture. Thanks for that, thank you for that introduction, which is very, um, makes me sound more productive than I really am. it's astonishing. <laughs> I hope I didn't miss out on <laughs> Um you, So you're asking about, sort of to start with, how, how it's been for me, as it were, my own evolution as a critic and then how I've seen other people yeah. changing as well. Um, and the one thing that I'm really conscious about with these mentoring classes is that you, you're aware of how many years you've been reviewing and I've been reviewing and how it still seems to me as though well I've just started so, you know, you ask how I've evolved, as it were, and the only thing I know is that I'm more confident in terms of just the way I tackle something, and I I second-guess myself less, you know, I, I have more trust in myself, but I still never think I do it particularly well, and I'm not sh- and that's not just a personal trait i think it's that every book is different mm-hmm. and you have to bring a different thing to every book you review so it's never the same thing yeah twice, twice ever you know, so it's not even like being a heart surgeon, which is obviously profoundly difficult, but in a way, once you've seen all the different permutations of heart surgery, you've be a doing heart a version is still of a heart. Heart is still a heart, exactly. Well, oh, I wonder.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> a, no but surgeon, yes, it's I mean, they stroke. certainly
0: all have the same structure. All yes. they did at one time. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's interesting. I, I always have a moment of panic, um, of sort of not being able to say it all.
1: Oh well, I mean that's the other thing that you know. Even if you have an essay of two thousand words, you you, there's so much more that you want to put in. But the the average sort of book review length for print publication, um, obviously online is different because it's both more elastic, but generally tends to be shorter. But let's just talk print for Mm -hmm. a moment. Is you know seven to eight nine hundred words, and. sometimes a book that's only 50 pages long still you feel you've barely begun with with the review so every review feels homeopathic to me and that's part of the skill of reviewing i think is knowing where to go in who to discuss in terms of characters if we're talking fiction yeah um and with non-fiction it's even harder in a way because you're it you're just using a presenting a skeleton really of the whole book yeah and yet you still have to give an idea of the vividness of the subject Mm -hmm. you can in no way can you do an a to z of what's in whether it's a novel or a portrait collection or non-fiction you are simply choosing a small window like a keyhole really and hoping that that says enough to um position the book as it were give it its place put it in context and maybe pique somebody's interest not necessarily to buy the book but um, just for them to lodge it in their mind. Mm. You know, One thing I'm, I've been saying to the, the group that I'm mentoring is that reviewing it from my point of view has nothing to do with the commerce of the book trade. Yeah. And it, I think, I've said this before, um, that it's not there to sell books at all. Um, whereas one of the mentees uh, felt, because she does theatre reviews, that she's giving people a clue mm-hmm. as to whether it's worth going to the next... And buying Um, tickets. Yes, and I understand that, and that is a function, Mm. but it's not the function of reviews that interests me at all. Which
0: is, is that more like um, sort of producing a commentary on the sort of field of cultural
1: production, really? The sort of, always the
0: state of the art.
1: It's exactly that, and although I know that sounds incredibly grandiose and you could look at a spread of reviews that I've put together some week and... And say, gosh, these are you know quite low key books, not even Mm. particularly good books. But I still think that every week it's a sort of it's a snapshot, and it builds up over the years. Uh, Yes, absolutely. I mean, it seems that uh, critics
0: are critics who are writing for regular publication, like periodical publication, as it were, are sort of doing the job of curating. That's such a 21st century buzzword. <laughs> I <like> it. Everyone <laughs> curates everything online, mostly through pictures. Right. Um, but sort of curating, you know, production, literary or cultural artefacts, as they're, before they're even artefacts, mm. um, when they're still new. It's the first branch, the first, sorry, no, the first front of reception or something. Yes, the yes first moment exactly. Because... Yeah. Right. A
1: critic has it before the public. Yes, yes, it's your first introduction to it, you're right. Um, the one problem about this whole idea is that there's something like 140,000 books, just ordinary commercial books published a year, not including academic or yeah. whatever. And so, the, again, back to the word homeopathic, it's just a tiny, tiny mm. sliver of that, you know, huge, huge mound yeah. that we are able to present to people. So from that point of view it's incredibly partial
0: yeah. and I, I very much like the uh, medical metaphors that you've been using. <laughs> it sounds on one hand quite surgical but there's the, you know, the sort of skeleton argument and an, the anatomy of a book mm-hmm. um, but possibly also you know are you, are you aware of the idea of the sort of greater health of you know is there a sort of diagnostic? aspects to the work of writing a review Um, you know in terms of this book is
1: healthy or not this book is good or not. In terms of being diagnostic I picture myself with my stethoscope on now (laughs) Um, I think it's very possible within a review to say something uh, sometimes just glancingly about the state of um, the literary scene at the moment Mm. you know and so you could talk about the whether it's the crime scene or the, the dearth of really good literary fiction. And it's not that there might be a dearth of really good literary novelists out there, it's just that they're not getting the chance because, you know, popular taste or commercial pressures are changing what publishers feel able and confident to do. And so actually, within a review, you can you can hint at this, allude to this, you can fit the book into that perspective. And very often, actually, I've noticed that some of the very good debut novelists or early novelists in the first or second books are coming out of very small publishing firms which can perhaps take risks, want to take risks, yeah. or actually set themselves up in order to take risks, which the big commercial giants right. have kind of lost the heart for.
0: Mm. So so it's important at the front of a review, to, or does it have to be at the beginning of a review, to place it in the context of a sort of broader movement in... Um, this
1: sort of fashion? No, I wouldn't, it's absolutely not formulaic. Firstly, you don't have to do that, and Mm. I think if you did that with every review, you'd bore yourself silly, as well as your readers. Um, And there are some books that are much more um, symptomatic of that, to use your medical (laughs) 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 terminology, (laughs) my medical terminology. So some books just stand out as representing this, and it's worth commenting on Mm. this. Um, But I would never... Uh, say you must put this right at the top or this in the middle or this at the bottom Um, because that's one of the interesting things about writing a review that 12 of us could write a review of the same book and all do it well and all do it incredibly differently and there will be connecting threads and there are things that you have to include but actually and this is what makes it so difficult talking about reviewing, there is no right way to do it but there are so many wrong ways and we've all done it and still are doing it lots of us who are still in the profession but you just hope you're doing that less often and so do you do you see over the time that
0: you you've been reviewing and then since you maybe even since you've become a literary editor mm-hmm. um that the profession has diversified either in terms of who's writing or
1: whose books are being reviewed well, um Good questions. I would actually, I feel everything has narrowed a little, actually. Mm -hmm. I feel when I started, uh, so I was first literary editor at Scotland on Sunday, and that would be in the mid-90s, mid-1990s, I started there. Um, I felt there was a far bigger pool of reviewers to draw on, I'm talking Mm -hmm. freelance, Mm -hmm. outside the newspaper journalists, than I feel that there is now. And some of that is just a function of the fact of, you know, declining revenue for freelance right. reviewers doesn't encourage a new generation in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, and sorry, just
0: to, I don't want you to lose your train of thought that but were they, what were they doing, were they freelancing for a large number of publications or were they writers, you know, were they primarily working on their own original works?
1: Both, actually, yeah. but... Mostly, it would be people who were writing for quite a lot of publications, and so yeah. they could kind of make a decent enough mm, living. And By would, drawing it all together. Yes, yeah. exactly that. And they would be, in most cases, doing their own books as well. It tended to be more non fiction, didn't have an awful lot of poets or novelists but. writing reviews, but there's yeah. sometimes the reason for that is that once you've written your own poetry or um, fiction had it published you can't bring yourself to criticize other people Absolutely, because no, <laughs> no, you're no. just sort of thinking I know what went I into it that. That, I think that is interesting actually the it, it's
0: always a delight to read you know Zadie Smith writing about the novels she's just yes. recently read but yes. it, it is quite it is most. It is almost to a T you know I am loving this
1: <laughs> yes and I also have had interestingly I've had novelists uh, send back books that they don't want to review because they really mm. don't like them or mm-hmm. not wanting to review somebody they know not well but somebody that they yeah. will bump into and that's one of the downsides of living in a small country or I suppose it's the same if you're living in London or Manchester you're yeah. bumping into the people that you're writing about yeah. and that you just really have to get used to yes. as do they I suppose yeah. um, but I feel now that it's that's one of the reasons I'm so delighted about the Emerging Critics Programme because it really is allowing commissioning editors to get to know people who really want to do this and right. to just give them a few guide- guiders because guiding points because um, the one thing I I feel from my group certainly is that I'm working with people who already um, have a real ability to do this and I'm, my job perhaps will be a sandpapering one or a highlighting and pointing out but it's not a for most of them, teaching them from scratch, right? because they just seem to have the minds that know where to go in. And my feeling is that those who want to go into reviewing of whatever sort tend to already have been mentally writing reviews. Yes. Uh, you know, all their <laughs> adult lives, as it were, our conscious lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I did see an article
0: a couple of weeks ago about a new children's book review site by, run by an 11-year-old.
1: Yes. yes, that's fantastic. Um, and yes. it's called Mango Bubbles, but
0: it's um, full of voices. People, you know, it's a, a collective of young junior reviewers. Brilliant. And it's, it is a strange thing. Um, my experience definitely was that we had to write book reviews on a Monday morning, you know, at, at, you? at the weekend I read, you know, you made it up because you didn't or <laughs> it's the same as the fictional, so to write the, fictional, the fictional weekend that you never had, you know, because you, your weekends were all the same, um, but um, yeah, my, uh, you know, and then I think I didn't realise I continued to write book reviews, but they were under the rubric of English literature essays
1: aha, uh-huh, yes, you know, yes. and then that becomes a, a sort
0: of different kind of criticism.
1: Well, totally. It's quite interesting with, with this um, whole project, Emerging Critics, because in some ways what we want to do is beat out the English literature degree out mm. of anybody who's got one and who's doing who's doing reviewing. And um, I feel I've not I've got a history degree, not an English yes. literature degree. Uh, I feel that is a huge asset in my my life, uh, because we're not hidebound in the same way by by feeling you have to be utterly scrupulous to the spirit of the book because to be utterly scrupulous you'd yes. almost be writing it in the style of the book or in mm-hmm. the voice of the author and and giving them always the benefit of the doubt yes because
0: you're always trying to sort of empathize or place yourself in the moment at the you know in the mind of the author to work out why it's structured the way it is exactly i i think that i, I think that's very interesting actually because um as someone who was trained in english literature but i was also a classicist and classics is this make incredibly interdisciplinary subject in which you have to learn how to write a philosophy essay and a history essay and a literature essay i wonder if historians do the historians and maybe even social scientists yes. can often make for a more, for a stronger opinion pieces.
1: I think as you, as a, with a history background, you're looking for evidence mm-hmm. to build up a case. Yeah. Did this happen or whatever? Did it not happen and why? So you're always dealing with questions, right from the history is mm-hmm. altogether to do with questions. And I hadn't thought of that ever before, but that's really quite, in a way, quite illuminating, just as a, yeah. as a frame of mind really so, so the job
0: and the job of a professional critic is um, to, it's to be attentive to to the the shape of the book and the writer's intention but it's to do but it's to meld that also with an opinion and the opinion is more important is that
1: well that's all well is the opinion more important Mm such a good question and I'm saying that because I've never actually thought about it. Is the opinion more important? No. And the book is always the most important part of this, because if you didn't have the critic's name on the review, it would still be important to have the book review and an opinion expressed, but can you trust an opinion if you don't know who's writing it? Yes. So, but... It's not very um, valuable without an opinion because Mm -hmm. otherwise it's just a reporting job. It's just a description. Yeah. So the two go together, but an opinion can be wrong, and therefore that if you're saying the opinion's most important, you've uh, sort of invalidated the book. Yes. Therefore. And the opinion, of course,
0: could change.
1: Well, that's the other thing.
0: The years or decades or you know. Yeah, and varying by reader as well.
1: Reader, Completely, reader. or yeah. how you are feeling and what's just happened when you read the, the book. Yeah. That holds particularly for fiction and um, right. poetry. I think with non-fiction, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a more even mm-hmm. course. It's not nearly yeah. really as subjective, really. Yes. Um, but with, with the creative writing, it depends on how you feel. And this, these are things that I find very difficult to think about because I've had very strong reactions to books which have been very emotional, and who knows, might have been linked to something that was going on in my own life. But I like to think that uh, as you become really professional, you're sufficiently detached, that you're only dealing with a degree of difference in your verdict, yes. depending on what's happening beneath the surface of your own life. Mm-hmm. That for the most part, you're dealing with the, real, the rights and wrongs of something, because there are rights and wrongs within any book. And you can say this was done well and this wasn't. And your conclusion can still be you did or didn't like it. But you do hope that, you know, a bad weekend doesn't colour you too much.
0: <laughs> but as a, as a critic, um, do you enjoy reading other people's reviews? I sometimes realise that I actually haven't read a book for a long time yes. and I've actually just read a whole load of reviews yes. and I know people who subscribe to the literary review in order to be able to ha- pretend to have read books <laughs> you know just in case someone mentions a book at a dinner party or something yes. you know.
1: well and I, I um, there are so many books particularly books that seem to be dinner party type books that I haven't read because if you're busy reviewing you've right. probably given those out to somebody else or you've missed it and um, yes. it's become a great success and you didn't have it reviewed or actually you think it looks pretty crap and Mm. um, yet everyone's talking about it and so um i do like reading other people's reviews i do not ever read reviews of books that i'm about to review if they happen to be you know early reviews um and i don't like reading reviews of books i've just reviewed for a while because Mm. i'll just feel a bit itchy and think i didn't didn't say that um, yes i don't agree (laughs) exactly Um. so all of that but a really good um really well written Book review is a huge pleasure. I like longer reviews as well because you kind of sink into the person's way of thinking, and you get as much of the reviewer as you do of the book, yes. which I really love.
0: Yeah. So you said that that, that you thought that there were few, that your own pool of reviewers has shrunk mm-hmm. somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it that they've all sort of is it because they're aging?
1: I mean, is there no, a, they're not dying. Is it not? It's not because yeah. they're dying. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Maybe also my standards have got higher. That's not entirely true. But I think I think I'm more critical of the reviews I get. Mm. Okay. I'm less patient because with the volume of work that has increased over the last five, six, seven yeah. years. There isn't time to send pieces back and ask for right, rewrites. rights right, really people course. need to be at a certain level and really good yeah and um, although I have a couple of exceptions to that who I work with it's still relatively minor and mm. um, there just isn't the leeway for that anymore is I can't be a sort of an in-house coach yes, to people yes. anymore. I mean I think
0: that that is something that um, people who have grown up.
1: Posting
0: their own blogs, you know, everyone's their
1: own editor now. Well, you see, that terrifies me. Yeah. Um, on one level, when you when we you start to think about something unfiltered. Yep. And that's and I find that a difficult area. I'm not even sure that I would post anything online without asking somebody something. to read it, uh, and not just because of the obvious um, defamation <laughs> problems or <laughs> yes. viral questions. Right. Things like that, which are issues in themselves, which mm, I have had. With reviewing. Yes, you still get that, even with, and sometimes actually with very well-known reviewers, um, who quite often are journalists as well, and you yeah. feel uh, perhaps ought to know better, but have had legally difficult things in pieces. You kind of always, they pop up and bite you. Yeah. When you don't expect it. That's fascinating. I had
0: not thought of that in terms of reviewing, but of course, I mean, I uh, have just uh, finished writing about, well, it's not a finished piece, but I suppose, spent a long time writing about uh, the beginnings of criticism in uh, Scotland and John Gibson Lockhart, mm-hmm. who, you know, was challenged in a duel over his position as a critic for Blackwood, Blackwoods, and he sent a, he sent someone to stand in for him, and the man who
1: challenged him, the editor of the London Monthly Magazine, was shot and killed. My
0: goodness! Yeah, it's it's astonishing. In eighteen twenty-one, gosh, things are
1: better now. <laughs> <laughs> Good, <laughs> I think maybe
0: <laughs> not pistols at dawn. No,
1: no, there's unpleasant things, but not not to my knowledge that unpleasant. I think yeah. I mean one of the great things about seeing emerging critics is. Firstly, how fantastic it makes you feel that there are people who really want to be critics mm. um, in whatever form that is and whatever platform. Yeah. And it also allows you to sort of take a proper deep breath and think, this is great because, you know, I. you don't want to think that you're always a person who's going to be in charge of this page or that page. You want to know that there are other people coming up who will bring a fresh eye right. and bring energy and enthusiasm because it gets to a point where... You look around and think, well, who, who can take this over? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be worrying. So it's really encouraging. And, yes, I see the Lifetime cruiser approaching fast now, which is fantastic. <laughs> I see the talent that's coming up.
0: Uh, and so it's, it's really a, a sort of arena in which there's a lot of enthusiasm.
1: Well, certainly with the, the people I've been meeting, yeah. extremely enthusiastic, extremely bright and able um, which is just great I have to say um, I'm not surprised by it but at the same time I am a little bit because you're not you th- you're constantly told that the literary criticism is a dying form really yeah. and you're constantly seeing doors closing everywhere and so to see fresh faced eager people remind mm-hmm. you that this is actually just not true and I think everybody by the time you've been doing a job as long as I have everybody starts to feel um that it's not like the old days whatever profession you're in and you start to feel a bit gloomy about it and you because a lot of literary journalism you're doing on your own and you're not in amongst a a peer group of reviewers you lose sight of the fact that that it's not like being in teaching and you see lots of young people coming through all the time whether it's in a university or school you can actually start to simply see people of your own age vintage Mm. And that, from nothing else, to go back to the health analogy, it's been really good for my health. This <laughs> excellent.
0: Thanks to Rosemary Goring. In the next episode, I talk with Kate Welsh about, amongst other things, the complementary relationship between print and online platforms for literary criticism, and whether the medium shapes the message as much as we think.